This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 13, Episode 47. This is Writing Excuses, Q&A on fixing characters. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Valin. I'm Dan. I'm broken. <laughs> well, hopefully we can fix you, Howard. Um, Jonathan asks... How do you approach changing slash refining character voices when you realize that two are too similar? Oh, man. Okay, so I did this. I talked earlier in the year about how all of my boy best friend characters tend to be very similar. And so the the most recent one, since it's not out yet, I have the chance to go through and fix it and really had to kind of fundamentally redefine in my head who he was. He couldn't just be the snarky guy who cracks the jokes I would make if I were in the scene. He had to have something else. Uh, and so I, I made sure that I gave him a very different background and a very different personality than the other character. And his language started coming out differently. And one of the things that I've done is when I have two characters in the same book, are sounding very similar, I've just had to decide, do I really need this extra character? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times I can just combine them into one. So I kill them off. It's a good thing that that doesn't happen in real life. Wow, you, <laughs> Howard, you sound just like Dan. Die now. We don't need both of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, my, <laughs> my, solution, my solution for this is often a, a vocabulary fix where I'll I'll pick words that are unique to each side. One character is willing to use metaphors in their speech, and the other won't use metaphors. They'll use something else. Um, And that often Mm -hmm. is enough to differentiate it. All right. Darcy Cole, longtime friend of the podcast and friend of ours in real life, asks us, how can you tell if a character is the problem? How do you go about defining this? And I've, I've had a moment to look at this, so I'll start us off. You guys can think about it. Um, I've had a couple times where the character was the problem, um, and it took a little while to notice it. What would happen is, in writing group, people were not wanting to get back to that character when their scene came up. Um, and this happens in all stories where you've got a, a, a large cast and you're switching between. Sometimes people are going to be like, I'm not excited to get back to this character. But what was happening with this one was, habitually, people were like, oh, that one was a downer too. Like, it wasn't just like they were sad to get back to it. They were not excited when they were done with it, and they were happy to get off of it and back to other characters. Usually, Reading these yeah. chapters is like homework. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I was running into that. So that was one way I identified, okay, this character's a problem. Yeah. If writing them isn't keeping you engaged, there's probably a problem. If it's, if it's boring, if it's, I find I rarely write things from multiple viewpoints, but when I do, it's very easy in those cases to, to pop out, oh, this character doesn't work when they're in somebody else's viewpoint because suddenly they become very boring. And I realize that I haven't built enough of a personality for them. So when I'm seeing them from the outside, they're incredibly flat. Sometimes it's just helpful to have someone like Dan read your book who will tell you. Because he's told me before, this character's boring. I'm like, oh, yeah, they are. 
Yeah, I think a lot of times I just have to have a beta reader or someone point it out to me because I'm too close to the project and can't see what's not working. So get an honest critique partner. Mm -hmm. And don't be afraid of honest critique because you're going to get those critiques inevitably. Uh, in partials, I've got a char- the character Marcus. He Everyone hated him. And that's the kind of thing that a good writing group could have caught. Our writing group didn't. And so then all the reviews and all the feedback from readers is, hey, this is great, but this guy's awful. <laughs> um, how do you maintain interest in a character who is largely inactive? For example, being afraid to leave the house. It's a classic first act problem, right? That sometimes you have a character who's reacting to stimulus instead of being the proactive one themselves. How do you, how do you solve this in your stories? Lynn, we've all talked about this thing a lot. Have you ever run into this where you wanted to start a character who was reactive and then had to deal with making the story interesting? If you've never done it, it's okay. I, I don't know if I have. I'm trying to think of, I, there's a movie that I'm thinking of that deals with, uh, it's Ryan Reynolds and he's inside a box, like the whole movie. Okay. So oh, it's the like, thing. Or no. or Sandra Bullock in the spaceship, like the whole uh. time, and it's like only her, and that's kind of what we're talking about, right? Just you have someone who. Well, I think in this case, what they might may be talking about is the the reluctant hero. Yeah. You know, a, mm-hmm. a protagonist who is who has not yet protagged. Often, for me, if I'm in a situation like that, it's because. It's time for the story to focus on somebody else where something is happening, or the story hasn't started yet. Uh, this person hasn't been moved out of their comfort zone yet. Um, in late, out early, I can come in later. Mm-hmm. Well, and you know, all of these examples that Valin is pointing out are people who are confined to one location but still very interesting. And yeah. that's because, you know, your reluctant hero who doesn't want to go on this journey yet. Presumably, that's because they've got something else they're really interested in doing. And so as long as they are excited about something or interested in something or doing something, uh, even if it's not the plot of your book, it still makes the character seem active even if they're not doing anything. Yeah, we are interested in lots of different things. Conflict, um, pro-tagging, as we say, proactiveness is one of them. But we're also interested in people's fascination. Someone being mm-hmm. really interested in something alone can be sometimes enough. But it, you, the the example was a character that didn't leave the house. That's a conflict. That's yeah. a really interesting conflict. Yeah. How do they work around not leaving the house? You've got a story there right away. And I think you end up just going deep into that character's head and understanding the thought processes behind what if I left? If I, I think there are a lot of things that go on in the head of someone who doesn't feel like he or she can leave the house. And so you're going, you have to really analyze those thoughts carefully. So um, also longtime listener Cheeto McFlair. Good asked, friend of Cheeto good, McFlair. Good, yes. As there's a lot of uh, Cheeto McFlair in all of us. Um, how do you write interesting bad guys when your POV characters are just the good guys? Oh, Cheeto stumped you. <laughs> I'm trying to think. Because I do this in all the John Cleaver books. We never get a viewpoint from any of the bad guys, but we do see a this lot is, of them. This is 
just that's just the story of life. You are the POV character in your story. Are there people who are not you who are interesting? Why are they interesting? What did you observe about them that was interesting? Yeah, I don't think you write them any differently for the most part. I mean, you still give them strengths and flaws. Mm-hmm. and it, it can be hard, though, and I see where the question is coming from, to, you know, how can you get into the head of someone that you're not actually writing anything from their point of view? Um, and I've run into this problem in, in some of my books. I really want to explore, for example, this person who is, you know, it's a chase book and we're trying to chase this person down. Why are they running? I can't say that without getting into their head. And so I have to find other ways of making them interesting and, uh, and of revealing their story. And sometimes the way to do that is uh, through research, through, uh, you know, let let your characters learn what they can from secondhand sources and let them um, extemporize on it, you know, talk to each other. Well, maybe it's because of this, or maybe it's because of this, which increases the mystery while answering questions at the same time. I had this problem in the Sealheart books, and the first one in particular, because it's a first-person narrative from a guy's viewpoint. And if you haven't read the books, he base his father is killed by an evil Superman, basically, an evil, you know, the, mm-hmm. the emperor of Chicago, and he his life's goal is to take this guy down. Um, and so I had to have this... Emperor of Chicago, who was um, a very powerful individual that my main character could never really interact with because if he did, he'd be squished. Mm. Um, And so my response to this and building the outline, I knew this and I needed to, um, like I had broadcasts from Steelheart, the Emperor of Chicago, that, you know, the kind of the kind of 1984 style, you have to watch this broadcast Mm. um, sort of thing so I could show him. Um, I showed the effects of his rule and had people talking about him. Um, and I built him with some, some immediate, uh, conflict, uh, not inside of him, but to the reader. Like when I present him in the opening scene, he is presented as a savior figure floating down from the ceiling and then he goes ballistic and it's bad. And that kind of self-contradiction of I'm expecting Superman and I got this instead, um, allowed me to make him very memorable in the reader's mind. That's my hope. Um, thank you for the question, Cheeto. Uh, let's go ahead to our book of the week, which is actually a TV show Howard's been not watching. Not a book, not a book at all. Myths and Monsters, which is uh, narrated by Nicholas Day. Um, as of January of 2018, it's available on Netflix. Um, the first episode is a wonderful pop culture overview on the Campbellian monomyth. Um, The whole series is about uh, mythology, you know, the heroes, the monsters, the settings of legend, and what are the historical and cultural underpinnings of those? Why are so many of them similar? Where are the standouts? Um, It's it's quite fascinating, and the... uh, the, one of the things that I love about it is that where no direct footage is available, say, of Tristan and Azolda in real life, um, they will often use uh, penciled illustrations with halftone shading that are really striking. Some really, really pretty illustrations uh, in the show. Very interesting. And uh, I'm four episodes in and have loved it. Excellent. Myths and Monsters, narrated by Nicholas Day. 
All right. So we get this question a lot, both in the last Q&A one and we did this one. I'm just going to pitch it to you guys. If you think we've just covered this, we can move on. But the question is, how do you give a powerful character meaningful challenges and relatability? Um, This kind of comes into the iconic character thing sometimes, but I think they're talking about someone like Superman. How do you how do you do this? And we get this question a lot. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's fundamentally you identify the things that they are not good at, and you put the challenges there, which works most of the time. But I do think there is something to be said for watching them use their the things that they're really good at. Yeah. You know, we 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 like that wish fulfillment of uh, of watching Superman just punch something so hard it compresses into diamond or whatever. And so sometimes you just you do just need a really big bad guy. Yeah. And I think you need to del- delve into the emotional sides of the character as well and what do they care about? Mm-hmm. Focus on what they care about. All right. Uh Victoria, you ask how can I make alien characters um charming and mysterious. We did an entire podcast on writing alien characters, so hopefully you've listened to that by now. Um, I'm going to go to Andrew's question here. How can I make a normal, everyday person an interesting character without giving them sort of some sort of Mary Sue tra- trait, i.e. child of prophecy or magically superior? I feel very bad that you perhaps don't know any <laughs> normal people who you find interesting. See, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, but I want to be in defense of Andrew here. Oh, Sometimes no, it's, it's totally very hard to do in yeah. writing, right? Um, what are your strategies for doing this? I have spent a long time listening to people. And I, when, I, when I was doing my drawing at the comic book shop, I would often ask people, you know, what, what do you do? What's, tell me about it. Describe your job. And I always learn, you know, learning learning that uh, the smell of pineapple and the smell of cheddar cheese are differentiated by, like, one chemical from a guy who is studying food science. People know things that I don't, and mm-hmm. I love learning that. And if you, if you recognize that and begin exploring those aspects of the people on your page, they will become interesting. And and uh, that applies not just to the knowledge that they have and the, and the background they come from, but also just the ways that they talk. One of my favorite scenes that I wrote in uh, John Cleaver 6 is uh, he kind of goes on a date at one point, and he's in a taco shop with five other guys, people his age, uh, some, and uh, they're just kind of local kids, about 19 years old, talking. And they're all very different, and some of them are obnoxious, and some of them are based on people that I know, and some of them are based on conversations I've had. And that kind of stuff is great, just getting into the gritty details of why does she talk very differently from her, you know? And uh, I love that kind of stuff. Now, if if we come back to the question and rephrase it, how do you instill a sense of wonder when the character is a normal character without giving them something wondrous, that becomes truly challenging. I sense a wonder's tricky. Well, mm-hmm. your books do not have any superpowers no. or anything. How do you dif- did you differentiate your characters? And I wouldn't even say that they all in, were necessarily skilled at anything specific, uh, at least not in a kind of traditional, this one has this ability. That, like, it was 
just about a bunch of kids and they were all really interesting. How did you do that? Right. I think that you just have to highlight what things characters are passionate about. It's a combination of passion and interests and uh, those naturally become strengths for someone. It's some, if it's a passion or interest, you have a lot of knowledge about that area. And not everything is going to be interesting to everyone. But you just have to figure out what you need for your story and how those characters can contribute based on their their knowledge and passions and hobbies. And I think that that's the best way to, I, in, in, in most ways that is sort of their super strength is, is what they love. So last question comes from Sarah. Uh, She says, I am writing a story. Um, How do I give my characters interests that mesh with the plot after writing half a draft and realizing that they have no interests? So she wants our help fixing her story. <laughs> Presumably without throwing away that half a draft. Yep. Begin with a spreadsheet. I'm serious. And make notes along one column that are, here are the plot points, and here are the interests, abilities, whatevers, that would be helpful in making that plot point. And then have your characters be you know, aligned in a different way and determine who lines up where and what needs to be given to who. And then things will start to emerge organically. I start with a spreadsheet, not because I'm going to fix things with a spreadsheet, but because the spreadsheet's going to show me the shape of the problem. And then I can stand back and look at it and say, oh, oh, the whole is all right here in act two. And it all comes down to three things. And I've got three characters and this is probably a pretty easy fix. All right, I'm going to give you guys a writing prompt, and it's actually a very simple one. Cheeto McFlair. Who is Cheeto McFlair in your mind, and why are they writing on our spreadsheet? Uh, we actually know who this person is. Um, <laughs> we're not just making fun of a We're not just making fun listener. of a random person, but I want you to make up who they are. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses is a Dragonsteel production, jointly hosted by Brandon Sanderson, Dan Wells, Mary Robinette Kowal, and Howard Taylor. This episode was mastered by Alex Jackson. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. Locus. 